welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I get so many lovely emails from Back from the Abyss listeners, but I'd never gotten a voicemail on my work number about the podcast until last fall. As I started listening to the almost four-minute message, I quickly realized that this was not my typical listener feedback. The caller, a guy named Daniel, had a lot to say about a recent episode, and it was not all positive. At first, I was in kind of a state of shock, but this quickly morphed into more of a fascination as I listened to Daniel's quirky and funny analysis of why the episode had rubbed him the wrong way. So, I decided I had to call Daniel right back and understand more about his critique. And he was pretty shocked to hear from me, but after an hour or so, a wide-ranging conversation, gosh, filled with lots of talk about DBT, 12-step bipolar disorder, spiritual bypassing, I realized that Daniel was just the person that I'd been looking for to tell a DBT story. And I was especially interested to hear that Daniel co-facilitates a peer DBT group with no therapist leader. This is a model that I could see being really useful in places with limited access to mental health services. This episode is part two in my look at DBT. If you haven't listened to the last episode, I think that's worth doing first so that you better understand the nuts and bolts of DBT. I get into adulthood and now comes this really persecutory inner committee, you know? And you know, in AA, they call it the itty-bitty shitty committee. And it's like, it's turned up to 11, and it's like, what is this? You don't look right. People are looking at you. You don't, you know, what's wrong with you? You're this, you're that. And it was so intense. I also was, a you know, a gay young man in the late 90s so there was an incredible amount of anxiety around AIDS and HIV and sexual behavior and I knew luckily I had been taught about what to do to protect myself but it's like my sister even recalls because hypochondria is to this day a challenge for me and she's like I remember you would go just so upside down with anxiety over these tests and you'd have you thought you had a fever and you you know and it was always this drama around HIV. Um, and that's when I just, all, one day I remember, it's, it's so funny. I was walking home from work and I saw a liquor store and I was like, wait a second. Like, I'm like, I can buy a case of beer. I can buy like a six pack. I can buy, I'm an adult. Like I can do this. I can drink on a weekday. And I just started using it to deal with this issue. The problem, and then I also started smoking pot with my friends, and that caused a lot of problems because, you know, maybe you know the brain chemistry here, but I was one of those people where pot made me more hyperactive than even Coke. I would go berserk. So something in my underlying temperament, my hypomanic temperament, was like unleashed. I was, oh my God, I would be like, doing characters and trying to like do skits with my friends and like really they were just like we want to smoke pot to calm down and you're acting out mm. of control that that's so true i've talked about that, that on the podcast that thc can both unleash initial bouts of hypomania mania and it can trigger new ones so it sounds like that was starting to happen then yes and, and it's why i really i'm i'm glad people won't be going to prison for dealing or, or doing that drug but i just think that people need to not view it as like this holy grail it's it's a multi-sided object and it's for some people i i believe that it did unveil like a bipolar 2 disorder in me um or accelerate it and then by the time i added cocaine it was like well we're now we're on you know and it's like here we go and it may have been that i just you know, hit it or it was, it was, you know, maybe being the good boy in schools and with teachers and uh, my parents, maybe it kind of hit it. I mean, I certainly had issues, you know, in my childhood and with, I was a gay kid in the nineties and, you know, that was scary and growing up Catholic and all this kind of stuff. It may have been like a delayed onset. It's, I don't know, but I definitely remember thinking, oh no, you know, what is this? And it won't shut up, and you can't get it to stop. 
and it just follows you everywhere and just thinking like I'm going crazy you know this is really bad and I remember it was the first time where I had I call this emotion the clashing I like to give my own names to these mental states because I think these psychiatric terms are so overused and they're so uh, they don't name the specificity of it so and in the when I'm working with the, the peers that I have a share community with around these issues, you know, I, I use my words. So one mood that I had, which I called the clashing, which is, you know, could maybe described as a mixed state, but it's just like a, an accelerated depression. So there's this, there's a kind of, again, yes, self-defeating or another way I put it is slow body, like body is moving through molasses with an totally hyperactive persecutory mindset it's like i can't do anything i can't move but my mind is going a mile a minute What's interesting, I was talking about this with my sponsor last night because we have very similar stories of later in recovery. It's not like, oh, I'm depressed. I have the clashing. I have like the shitty committee. So I'm just going to do enough drugs to like get to baseline and then like be productive. It's like, no, no, no. We want to go to the opposite. I want to feel great. Feel yeah, be, a, be a golden god. Yeah. So there's the addiction as a kind of autonomous part that, that it like plays into these mental health issues the dual diagnosis triple diagnosis but the addictive part that like all or nothing you know ride or die like you you're giving me the keys it's a ferrari with a rocket pack on the back it's not just like let's go to work you know it's like fuck work like let's not go to work yeah let's yeah, yeah i think that's such a good point that substances in the right or the wrong person however you want to define it they can not only be kerosene on the fire of bipolar disorder, schizoaffective, you know, making the psychiatric illness so much worse and deadly and progress faster, but it becomes its own beast. Like the addiction takes on its own, becomes its own dragon. And that's what this whole idea of dual diagnosis, I think that people often don't understand. It's not just, oh, I have two diagnoses, I have A and B. It's that, you know, A, the primary mental health diagnosis is being completely lit on fire by B, which is then becoming its own whole journey of destruction a hundred percent and in i go to a lot of dual diagnosis meetings and some people don't know that they exist but they do and on zoom during the pandemic they really grew and what you basically have was like a lot of folks who were like the bipolar person in their small aa meeting where people maybe roll their eyes oh they're going to talk about depression again or their meds or their psychiatrist or they're told do not talk about this stuff we don't talk about outside issues here all those folks we've been able to get together on Zoom and share. And we really puzzle out. We're trying to puzzle out like how these things interplay. Like in a way, thinking of them as separate is a it's just a trick of history because of the way mental health care and substance use treatment were split sort of in a way because of AA. But um, like you said, it really helps me think of the addict part as it is an autonomous internal part, you know, just like my inner child and my healthy parent. And I love that stuff. And like this, this dude, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I love him because he certainly has shown me some things and he needs love. He needs love. He, he is like in many ways a criminal, like, and he is like a bad boy, quote unquote. But like, just like they talk about in uh, internal family systems. It's like, that's just the like burdened, like, you know, weight that that part carries. That part does deserve love. And we can get onto this later of like, it doesn't deserve judgment does not help. But a lot of, a lot of treatment is judgment.
first psychiatrist I saw was in graduate school. So that was like 2004. That's a, that's a long time after, you know, into adulthood before someone's like, okay, let's, let's figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Really the first time like sobriety ever came into it, it was in grad school. And I did make these attempts to like go to meetings and like I was, okay, yeah, like I get this. I, this isn't right. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be going out late at night and doing, you know, drugs at the gay bar after like doing a great job with a Hamlet soliloquy, you know, and my classmates are like so enthusiastic about the work I'm doing and, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, I really have talents that are going to be really destroyed by this you know but it was it, it was not like I wouldn't say that like sobriety took hold I even had periods where I didn't use during that time but it wasn't like that change that deep change where it's like okay I'm done I still think the personality dynamics and the the you know the affective system was still so cranked up. I mean, I, I probably should have gone into like a really good dual diagnosis rehab, but it was like, what? There was no way I was going into rehab. Mm-hmm. No way. No. And two, the other things to be, you know, a young gay man in that whole, I mean, you know, we don't want to be stereotyped here, but there is something about, especially urban young men um, and substances and sex. And like, it is exciting and available. And I'm imagining if there were parts of you thinking I got a pull back or stop or change my life, who would you be then? Well, I definitely, you know, there's a, I'm very into DBT now and there's a great DBT uh, worksheet on myths about emotions. (laughs) And the, sometimes like Marshall Linehan's whole personality comes through on these worksheets. And one of the myths is like, drama is cool. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, or like people who like, I need intensity to be an artist. I mean, that's the other thing. Not only did I have like, I'm a gay guy, like I, this is fun. You know, I'm, I'm having fun. It's fun to do drugs. It's fun to have sex with these hot guys. And then there's also the thing of like, I'm an artist and like, look at that lineage. Going back to the beat generation, I mean, I I valorized the beat generation when I was in college. I read Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, and you have William S. Burroughs. You have all, and then for me in high school, you know, it was grunge, and I, I considered the grunge music era to be a return of the beat generation. It's like less connected to um, punk than it is to the beats, and that drug use was a hundred percent valorized. Alice in Chains. What's my drug of choice? Well, what have you got? you know, and I was a hundred percent running on that train. And that's just how behavior finds ways to justify itself, Mm -hmm. you know? And yeah, I kind of thought people were squares, you know, like I kind of had that whole like kind of dick mentality. You know what I mean? Um, Oh my God. It's embarrassing to think about a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) People were so, you know, so kind to me and loved me and saw the I think really saw the best in me and, and also were aware probably that this stuff was going on and I had friends who were like I don't know how to help you this really scares me They're like I see what you go out and do when you do these drugs and it's like I'm scared for your safety Just there were people you know really concerned mm-hmm. living in um, New York City and it's been a year since my mother died and I'm I'm starting to feel better and I actually thought to myself I think I'm going to start a band and I took out a Craigslist ad and I started talking to some dudes and I was like maybe I can do like this theater thing with music and combine it because I was always like a music and acting person and it's Memorial Day Friday I had a temp job at the time so it was a long weekend, beautiful day. I come home and there's a call from my dad and he says that my brother has killed himself. 
but that my brother committed suicide, that he hung himself. And I remember in my mind's eye an instantaneous image of a wall went up. It was a it was a visual internal image. I didn't see it in the world. It wasn't a hallucination. It was an internal image of a wall, almost like something like the Great Wall of China, but actually higher, like the wall in like Pink Floyd, where it like goes up as high as the sky can be seen, and to the left and to the right as far as I can see in either direction. And this then just screaming. I just was screaming over and over and over again. I couldn't stop screaming. In fact, I couldn't stop screaming so much that a neighbor child was like, stop it through the window. And my brother had like so much pressure on him. I do think temperamentally he and I were similar in many ways. If we could have gotten him into like a facility, <laughs> like even like 450 milligrams of lithium and like 100 milligrams of Seroquel, he could have woken up the next day and been like, why, why was I thinking all that stuff? Like, how do I know that? I know that because of me. Mm-hmm. You know, and like now that wouldn't be the answer, but then there would be clarity to solve the problems. Like, buy some time. Yeah, like maybe this business isn't the right fit for you. Maybe this is too hard. Maybe you should go work for a company, or maybe there's other things that have to change about maybe this lifestyle is too, too much pressure, whatever it was. Um, maybe he needs help, you know, in certain ways. But I just think that when you're that kind of guy, it's like, it's all you. Like, you, you're fucking up. You suck. Kill yourself. You're, they're better off without you. You're a burden. All this kind of, you know, I know what these depressive thoughts are like. And we do know that, like, you know, suicide is this, uh, uh, is, is a thing that men do do to themselves. You know, when they can't live up to this society or they don't have the skills. Mm-hmm. And his death basically reconfirms your deepest fears that everything, everyone you know or love can just poof. This was like, it was like, I was not exactly like a a coalesced person yet. I still had a lot of healing to do. And then it was like taking fragments on a tabletop and shattering them into even more fragments with a hammer. It was like, oh, you're traumatized. Like you're still getting over this whole addiction thing. You have a you have a mood disorder you don't even know you have. Crash. <laughs> here's another. You know, here's complex PTSD on top of it. And I um, this is a line in the movie Bottle Rocket. He goes into the the psych ward, the Luke Wilson, and they're like, "Why did you? What happened?" And he goes, "I went fucking nuts. I just went nuts. I mean, that's how I felt during that time. Like I went nuts. Like I." I wasn't using, but I was like enraged. I was just so angry at the world. It was a very, very scary time. I go to see a psychiatrist, a, a good psychiatrist, and he's like, you're a little bit of everything. He's like, you're not, you don't present classically as like one thing. He's like, you're a little bipolar, you're a little ADHD, you have anxiety. There's some of this like, he's like, you know. So we just tried some of the bipolar meds, like a little bit of lithium, a little bit of Seroquel, you know, maybe, yeah, I think that was it. But, you know, I, I it may not have been like, enough exactly but it really did help and like I just felt like I could order my thoughts for the first time like ever like to pick and choose and I also think that the it just calmed me down so that I could actually like get stuff done so I just start being incredibly productive but like I would not say manic I give birth to this creative project. It was like based around a character and I'm 
doing solo shows, performing at like open mic nights. I'm, and then I'm like, I'm going to write a play, like a full length play. And then we like, we perform the play. And then it's like, I'm going to get a grant. And I got like a big a grant, I don't know, grant for like $7,000 from the state. And it was like, I had to do all this application material, all these forms, all of this stuff. And then when the production was done, I had to reconcile all of it and like all the receipts and all the finances and make sure I spent it all on stuff I said I would. But you were sober and you weren't hypomanic. No. And I was, now people were like, where do you, where do you get this energy? You know? And I'm doing one play, two play. I write a third play. I write three, write and produce and really direct three plays starring me with other people in it in two years. And I'm just, and then I'm like, we do it in this little town. Then we go and do it in Boston. Then we go do it in New York. So I'm hooking up with my former graduate school colleagues. Like this new work that I'm creating is exciting to them. And it's all this, you know, intersection. And um, I get in a, a relationship, you know, and I'm like living with someone and his dog. And it's like, oh, my God, I love this dog. And I'm kind of living in a house with a person and a healthy person, a healthy person. You know, it was not like necessarily the right relationship for a long term, but it was very nurturing and it was very loving. I auditioned for one of those big reality shows, like in front of 8000 people or something, you know just like big difficult shit you know like stuff that is not takes a lot of like guts i just ultimately did not go on the show because i didn't like the experience but like i did it, it was like it showed up so then i decided to move back to new york and it's like let's get back on the track let's see i have this project let's see what we can make of it in new york i joined the sober communities in new york i had like five years sober i'm like oh my god you know i've got a long time sober I see a lot of my colleagues, they're in the city, they're having huge successes, they're doing great with their careers and relationships and stuff. And, you know, so it was pretty, it was pretty gutsy. I mean, I think I was 40 when I moved to New York and a friend of mine was like, you're insane. He's like, only you be like, I'm going to start my life over at 40, you know. So and it was great, you know, and I had a really good job at a really interesting nonprofit, um, doing interesting work during the day and then doing this wild project that just started to like take off take off in ways i could not ever have imagined it was like oh my god what's happening and that's when things like started to get tricky I made a key mistake of going off my medication, which is like the bipolar person, like refrain, <laughs> like let's do another turn on the wheel. But part of it was I had skills deficits even when I was stabilized and this stress that I was dealing with, it was not the same as like, you're living in a Midwest city and doing these cute plays. It was like, holy shit, you know, like I'm flying over to Europe to like be in like a commercial, you know, like what the, f you know, and uh, oh my God, and really very validating and like people saying, people would say wild things to me, you know, like that would just send me careening upwards and it's like, I don't think they ever realize that like when they, they're trying to be helpful, they're like, oh, you know, you're amazing. You're brilliant, you know, whatever. And, and this is going to happen to you. And like, you know, people say like, get ready. Your life is about to change. Like you're going to become like a big deal, you know, and not just one person, two, three, like all these people around you and around me. And it's, it's like inflating and then like it doesn't happen and then it's like it's so it's just this up and down and I didn't have 
the mentalization skills to really like compress those ups and downs, you know, to like to counter that stuff with a coping thought or a coping, you know, some physical thing or the, the, the skills that I have now. So it really was like being on a seesaw and the shows would be amazing. And then there'd be like the day after. And then I wanted to lose weight because like, okay, I have a photo shoot. I'm going to be in a video. I'm a, people are going to be seeing this. I don't want to be on these meds. And also they're not working. Mm -hmm. They're not working. I mean, look, I'm like, you know, the people in my day job start to say, we don't know which Daniel was going to come in. I think it's such an interesting kind of question and theme about this. My meds aren't working because what does working mean? Because I think so often things are going pretty well, but maybe not perfectly or beautifully. It's easily, easily to think, well, I still get sad or frustrated or don't sleep well sometimes, or even feel a little hopeless. These meds aren't doing anything. And so, but it, it could well be that actually they're the scaffolding that's keeping you from plunging into total hell or, or not. So it's always very interesting to me when people come in and say, you know, my meds aren't working. I think that can be a 20 minute exploration of what's working. What I, I, I mean, I know I wish I wish you had been my psychiatrist. <laughs> I don't, I mean, you know, I was in therapy. I was in this very open-ended therapy. I mean, I would sit down and he wouldn't say a word. So it was, I think, very psychodynamic. And I think I really needed, I wanted skills at that time. And I wanted not to be told what to do, but I really felt like, you know, life is, life is really happening for me and I don't have the skills to manage myself within it. And that, that may not be bipolar disorder. Like you say, like there was probably potentially seas of other emotions that were not happening because of the meds. But that, again, like you said, it's like, well, if you're, you know, 40 years old and like you've done drugs your whole, most of your adult life and like not coped with stress and been challenged and done, you know, you've done hard things, but use drugs or grandiosity to get through them. Now you're being called upon and there's, you know, again, in DBT, they would say, this is a skills deficit. It's not a pathology. It's just that someone doesn't have the skills. And so I stopped taking the meds and then I just really started to, it just started to get worse. I quit that day job and then was like, I'm just going to do this art project. And it was a completely wild feeling of like not having a job and kind of giving up my apartment and then couch surfing and performing and I'd be performing in Minnesota and then I would be here and then I would be there and then I'd be on Cape Cod. And then I was, a, and it was like, Speaking wait, that's so like between time zones. Off, off your meds, working at quote unquote, right? So you're performing at night. Yes. So like about the very best way to destabilize other than like throwing some drugs. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I didn't, I so value my sleep now and I see that sleep as the ultimate mood stabilizer and also sleep interrupts episodes. But anyway, so I am like here, there, everywhere. I land in a small town in the wintertime <laughs> in a scenario that can be basically described as like, you know, The Shining. friend let a very generous friend let me live in his uh, spare apartment and i think like i'm gonna record my great not my album this is like a next level artistic retreat and it just it's so interesting because i was 10 years sober and i think i'm i really want to study this qualitatively except i have no ability like no skills as a researcher but i really want to study this because my sponsor had 10 years at one point and he had the same experience. We both had the same thought in our mind. We were sort of defeated 
by stressors. Sobriety, the program didn't feel like enough. And we both had this refrain in our minds, I have no future. 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 Which ironically opens up everything. Like if you believe that, you... I mean, it opens up everything bad. Yes. <laughs> That's what I mean. It opens up all the doors that you have kept shut. Yeah. If you have no future, why not go for it? So, you know, I think there's something maybe about 10 years. Also, I wonder, you know, in 10 years, you think 25 to 35, 30 to 40, 40 to 50, you're very likely in a different stage of your life. And it could be very easy to imagine. Wow, 10 years ago, that was a different me, that was a different place, a different context. It's like, things are different now. And it could be things are different in a bad way, like I, I thought I had hope, or my life could go somewhere now, I know it can't. Or it could be, no, I, I've got this. But I, just, I never thought of it that way. But I, do th- I have seen that with my patients, that around a decade, things can fall apart. And I wonder if it's because we really have kind of lost this continuity of self and that we think now I'm in this new stage. That was an old me era. And now I can let loose. I think there's a, you look back and there's this freshness about that person that went to meetings and did service and was so eager and driven and, pounding the pavement in the wintertime without a car to get to meetings, that kind of innocence. And then I think experience comes in and it's like, I'm not that kid, but like, I don't really feel like a man yet. Like, what am I, you know? And, and I, I certainly developmental, a big part of depression can be like, I haven't reached a developmental stage that I think I should be at. These are all judgments they're not helpful. So yeah, so I end up going into a hospital <laughs> and um, a psych ward because I can't get meds because the psychiatrist in this little town is like not available. So I have to tell them that I'm like suicidal, which I'm not, but I'm having a lot of bad thoughts every day. I have a ton of unstructured time. You know, I went to see this like counselor in this little town and it's, it's so funny because like, I think if someone had behaviorally analyzed my life, they would have been like, well, yeah, who wouldn't feel that way? Like you're sitting around doing nothing. Like go get a job. Like go be a barista. You, you, or you're going to record your great album. Well, you're probably going to do that, you know, a couple hours at a time. Go be a barista five days a week. What do you mean? You're just, you know, but, um. They put me on lithium and it was pretty amazing the way it did kind of immediately kind of erase certain thoughts. It is sort of like a magic bullet. Yeah. Do you remember what thoughts? I have no future went away. Mm. It was like, what? Why would you think that? You know? Which is a crazy side note that a, an element lithium can wipe away a quality of thought. But you, you must see it all the time. Yeah. No, I just, but I'm endlessly fascinated by that. It's bizarre. Yeah. They did refer me to a partial hospital and that's, they said, you're going to, it's a DBT partial hospital. And I was like, I've always wanted to do this stuff. I've always heard about this. So, but it was a couple weeks before I went into the program. It took like three weeks. So I just spent all my time reading about DBT and watching videos of Marsha Linehan And I was like, wait, this is really interesting. I was like, I'm really interested in this and all these ideas of like borderline personality and all these like different debates and like the whole like psychoanalysis problem. And and I didn't know the full depth of the history, which is like she had been unhelped by those forms of therapy when she herself had some of these issues. And but I just got really interested in it. And so when I went to the program, it's a good thing because it was not (laughs) like it was, you know, this was like a 
the people, some of them at this program, they were great. Some of the clinicians, they were really passionate and others it felt kind of phoning in. And I think that like there is a way in which DBT is very like boring because it is like these boring skills. But I do think there's an incredible amount of passion in there and it can really help. And I think that passion is Marsha Linehan's passion to help people get out of hell, which was a mission she took on herself to save others from a fate that she had escaped. And it that's where I also think there's similarities with 12 Steps because the 12 Steps is by people who escaped a fate and then want to help others. And that 12th step, and I think, you know, DBT is driven by that same. So anyway, I go into this program and it's like, it's great because I'm back in school. So it's like, I've got my notebook, I've got my pen, I'm like the good boy. And people like me, you know, and I'm making friends and I'm meeting all these people. And there were like, there were the, there were the Gen Xers like me who had like work problems, nervous breakdowns, phobias, like whatever. Then there were the millennials who just could not cope with college and were self-harming and dealing with some insane stuff. And then there were these amazing baby boomer women who were just like, they'd had it. They were like, that he's like he's not getting anything he's not getting a damn cent like they had all these like ex-husbands they had these bosses i have i work for the worst boss in the world you know i'm like okay let's talk about judgment um and we'd all do our diary cards you know how suicidal do you feel today i remember it being very moving for people to check in about how self-destructive they were with the group you think you're going to act on it? What will you do if it gets worse and you're at home? I'll call the number. You know, do you have other people you can call? What skills will you use? And my cards, they're, I'm like, well, what's, what issues am I working on while I'm here? You know, like I'm not like self harming, I'm not like committing, attempting suicide. And one of them, she's like, Oh, I was like, well, I have this thing where I like, I think this. And she's like, that's rigidity. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I'm not, I'm this like cool performance artist, weirdo. And she's like, that's, that's rigidity. <laughs> and then I'll never forget this one moment where we were talking about rumination. And they're like, rumination is when you sit there and you just think about how bad you are and how awful you are and all the bad things that you've done. And I like put my hand up and I was like, well, I, I mean, I think that's how I like motivate myself. And they were like, the, the clinician was like, no, that's depression. I was like, it is. And everyone in the room went, yes. <laughs> and they're like, you're not supposed to do it. Mm. Oh, I'm not. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Mm. Okay. So this was really your first exposure to DBT. You'd heard of it. You yeah. knew it was skills based. You wanted more skills in therapy versus like more just insight or internal exploration, but you had to go into the hospital to get a DBT intro. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think in general most spoke to you? I mean, you talk about skills and things to work on. And, and it, sounds, it sounds like another thing is that you could relate to that there's sort of a program, you know, there's a way forward, like with 12 step. But yeah, I'm just curious, what, or curious in general, what was it about DBT that kind of turned the light on? One of my favorites is accepts. Wise mind accepts activities, contributing comparisons, emotions, pushing away thoughts, sensations. Comparisons is compare yourself to someone else who's worse than you. <laughs> <laughs> or the same as you. I compared myself to Maria Bamford, who's like has a lot of mental illness problems and was able to be in show business. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. That's huge. I think in DBT, they would say it's important to recognize that we can do hard things. It's important to name the hard things we've done 
And then to say that we can continue to do hard things because more hard things are coming. And like spirituality and all this stuff is not going to make those things not hard. And like you're not doing it wrong if it's hard. Um, but they, it might take the suffering out, but there's still going to be pain. I don't deal with hypomania anymore, I would say, or really depression. I'd say that like, you know, anxiety is an ongoing issue. And the hypochondria is an ongoing issue. And the, you know, I think I've actually started calling it somatoform disorder because hypochondria is a like a literary trope or like a, I'm a hypochondriac, but it is like a, it's a serious problem. Like it's very real. And like it's, my doctors would tell you it's very real, you know, and it's something that I'm, I started to diagnose and, and, analyze behaviorally thanks to dbt because we're asked to think behaviorally like find our loops find the rewards we think oh i hate the way i behave when i do this i hate it i feel so terrible after but then we realize there's a reward for that you know and that we have to look for those rewards those incentives the people we in our lives may be reinforcing it and we don't even know it so i get on kind of the proper meds i'm going to these meetings and then I just start really only going to dual diagnosis meetings where we talk about mental health issues and sobriety and it's like a revolution for me because I can talk about I mean I just remember being in one of these early meetings on zoom and talking with a whole bunch of other bipolar addicts about hypomania and someone saying you know I can trigger it by not eating and I was like yes He's like, sometimes if I'm bored or I just feel like depressed, I know if I just don't eat, I'll get hypomanic. Mm. And I was like, whoa. Um, talking in detail about what hypomania feels like and what it motivates and what the, the pleasures of it, the difficulty, you know, talking about my hypochondria in detail, people sharing about being borderline personality, people being schizoaffective. Managing hallucinations, depression. What about this borderline personality question? So I think a lot of people, when they think about DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, they think, oh, that's for borderline personality disorder. That's for people who self-harm, self-injury. That's for, um, I think, often like women, you know, who wow. are cutting and burning themselves. I think that's, wow. that's a stereotype. But what we're hearing you describe is that DBT has actually been a crucial part of addressing kind of the addiction demon, addressing the bipolar demon, addressing the committee of mm -hmm. horrible negativity in your head. Mm -hmm. Well, the so the entire suite of DBT skills is for people who self-harm and are highly suicidal. It was developed that way by Marsha Linehan and her team. So all of those skills will make sense to somebody who's struggling with that. That's considered phase one of DBT. Phase two through four are for like, and there's different ranking of them, but like two is for things like mood disorders, anxiety, trauma, um, uh, eating disorders, and what they describe as problems in living. And there's even, there's all these really amazing terms in the DBT skills manual. So like she also talks about um, people who live lives of quiet desperation could be helped by these skills and is that her term no that's, that's an a, AA term that's a that's term a, from um from, a poem okay and then even better people who are incapable of experiencing ordinary happiness which is a freud quote flipped now she read a lot of freud she loved freud she read a lot of freud so that describes a lot of people <laughs> You know, that's a lot of people, like problems in living, you know. So what happens in I, – I'm participating in the, kind of a peer DBT study group. It's not a therapy group. There's no therapist. We're all peers. We read from a workbook. We read together. We answer the questions together. We do homework. We discuss the skills. Like, is this a thing? Does this exist all over the country or is this just here? It's just, so, it's just us. It's, it's just like six okay. people. I've never heard of a peer DBT group. It's a great I – mean, Great I'm, idea. I want really want to get it, have it get studied to see if if it, these could be useful. What I will say is, no one in our group is self harming. No one is suicidal. No one is in crisis, and no one is relapsing. So everyone has like over two years of sobriety at least. Many of the people have like 
six, seven, eight, 10, 20, 25 years of sobriety, some of them. But there's something that's not working for them. There's anger issues in certain situations. There's an inhibition to communicate at work. There's issues that are holding people back and they're going to therapy. I don't want to like criticize therapists, but I think that a lot of therapy, from what I hear when I talk to some of my friends, it's like a weekly check-in. So then this happened, you know, and there is not a structuring and a confronting of what's not working. And the result is that people kind of coast and it's like they're not using. So they think like that's enough. But the steps have not addressed these issues because a lot of times this relates to emotions. And the, the 12 steps have nothing to say about emotions except like you shouldn't be resentful or fearful. There's There's nothing about how to really – there's some stuff about meditation, but it doesn't get into the nitty gritty of the mindfulness. Now, it may be that what this group is doing is not DBT. It may be it's a mindfulness and cognitive skills group. But I do think that like the, some of the, the – we do use the dialectical thinking. So you can both be um, – you can accept your life as it is and be working to change it. They're not mutually that we want to do both of those. We can accept that I feel terrible in this moment and my life is okay. That resolving of that polarized way of thinking, black and white thinking is part of a lot of mental health challenges, anxiety, depression that are not necessarily borderline. Now, Otto Kernberg, the psychoanalyst, would say all drug addicts and alcoholics have a borderline personality organization. They may not have the disorder. But they have the splitting and the denial and projective identification and all these kinds of defenses that they call it. Um, so, you know, maybe that's there. What I've found with this group is people in recovery are so primed to, like, work on themselves and to be like, you know, like, maybe the way I'm doing things isn't entirely right. You know, like, I'm, I may be the problem. I might, you know, that they absorb these skills very easily. Like I've had, I've had some of the folks in this group, one acronym <laughs> where they're like, it's changed everything about my work relationships. Or I was unable to, I transformed my relationship with my landlord through the give skill, gentle, interested, validate, easygoing manner. Whenever he calls, give, validate, validate him. I don't agree with him, but I validate him. So there are these little shortcuts that it's like, oh, am I an angry person and I'm always like getting into these arguments with people and I don't know how to control my temper and must go back to my childhood. It's like, or I just don't know how to have a tough conversation and get what I want while not escalating things with people. Yeah. I never learned how to communicate. Yeah. seems like both dbt and 12 step put the locus of control and responsibility on the person on the client on the patient whereas i think i agree with you i think what happens all across the country in so many therapy rooms is a, not just news telling but uh, a finger pointing thing like here's all the reasons that i'm un unhappy i'm depressed i'm distressed i'm demoralized um and people can do the same song and dance and therapists yeah it's hard da, da, da. yeah but I think DBT and 12-step both say, hey, the issue's you. Well, there's two, there's a major difference, I believe. And I want to create a common factors document, but eventually. But the major difference is DBT has that validate. So I hear that it's really hard for you. You're really struggling in this marriage right now. I can see how it has that validate, but then it has the change is the other side of the dialectic, which is, Let's talk about some skills so that next time you can react in a way where you preserve your self-respect. You're really struggling with this family member. They're really difficult. Every time you talk to them, you feel terrible. Let's talk about some communication skills you might use so that when you get done with those conversations, you can preserve your self-respect. That change idea. The 12 steps 
is very change-oriented, but not very validating. The idea that you're powerless over your addiction is validating, like it's not your fault, you know, but it doesn't validate as well. And so you end up with people who think like, I have character defects. I'm not doing the program right. I need to pray more. I need to turn it over to my higher power. I must be holding on to these. I refuse to drop the rock. And DBT puts a lot more... There's a lot more validation of the person. Well, even like the idea of skills, like what would be the skills in 12-step? It would be um, honesty, I guess, or um, going to your sponsor, the skill of consistency of coming to groups. I mean, I think there's a few skills, but nothing like DBT. I mean, DBT, that's core to it. My understanding of it is you're actually learning specific ways to handle your thoughts and feelings. Yes, and that 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 is something that you can do within yourself and that I I think that, you know, and and maybe Otto Kernberg would like back me up on this that the the idea that like I'm full of character defects and my higher power is the answer, that sounds like splitting to me. I don't know. Again, we have more of the illness coming in as the solution. As opposed to there, there are skills in DBT of like turning the mind or, or connecting to your higher power if you need solace. But before you do that, there's a lot of observing and describing you do of what is happening inside yourself. And a lot of people, they come from maybe bad childhoods or whatever, whatever, whatever. They don't even know what they feel. I mean, you must encounter this all the time. People, they, they, you ask them how they feel and it's like they're looking into a fog. Yeah, bad. Yeah, bad, nothing, I don't know, you know. And that that observing and describing, and one, I think, other pivotal DBT principle that comes out of mindfulness and Buddhism is being non-judgmental. That's not in the 12 steps. You're not supposed to be, you're supposed to watch out for resentments, which certainly, who wants to be resentful? Um, but DBT has pages after pages after pages of what happens if you're envious. Where does envy come from? And in DBT, you're always going like, what is the function of this? You know, envy. Oh, that that's bad. That's, you just shouldn't be like that. That's bad. Well, you're envious when other people have things that you wish you had. So maybe you need to work harder to get those things that you want. But also while you do that, inhibit like destroying their stuff. <laughs> There's times when, when we're reading the skills where we hit something where it's like, whoa, like, mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> wow. Um, we hit the kind of um, the deep end of the issue. And always I'm trying to, with the when we talk within the group, to say, you know, the folks that this was made for have issues. They're just like ours. They're just a little more intense and they're struggling a lot harder. But I think that it's on a, honestly, I think it's on a continuum. Yeah. Which specific DBT skills have been most life-changing for you and why? I had, well, I had a therapist like well, a couple of years ago who really helped me. And he wasn't DBT, but he was a Buddhist. And I just remember him yelling at me once over the phone because I was like, I feel terrible. And like, oh no, what happened? What did I do? And oh, I feel so bad. I'm such a bad person. He's like, it's not. You're not bad. You're not bad. It's the bipolar. Daniel, when you get like this, you have to think. Think about why you feel the way you feel. Use your mind. You're smart. Think about what's happening. And I know this sounds like crazy, but the idea that I would think about my emotions had never occurred to me. Not in not in that neurotic analytical sense, but in that like connecting. And I think the whole future of psychopathology research is that it's not about like, oh, not enough this chemical, too much of that. They're talking about the connections between parts of the brain. 
And I think in people who are, who are really emotional, big emotions, quick emotions, for whatever reason, the thinking portion of the brain is not connected to the feeling portion of the brain. And the feeling portion is so fast because it's primal. It's so fast that, but you can slow down the body, slow down the emotions, slow down the mind, and link them up. And the observe and describe going from, I'm an idiot. Okay, a globalized godlike statement, judgment about myself too. I feel really embarrassed because of what I said on that date. I feel like I said too much or not enough or I don't know. In this moment, I'm just feeling really insecure. But that's okay. Dating is hard. Okay, so I observe. Not a judgment. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. I'm crazy. We don't talk that way. We don't talk about ourselves that way. We talk about how we feel and why we might feel that way. And then we have a coping thought at the end which is that it's okay to feel this way. I validate myself. I feel that if you think for that second, we think these things all the time. We think them about other people. She's an asshole. You know, she's. I find her to be a difficult person because she thinks this way of being in the world is like, you know, the way to be. And I'm, I'm just not like that. And it rubs me the wrong way. We're in a very different world here now. I'm with this person as an equal I'm not making a godlike proclamation about them, but I'm an idiot. I'm crazy. How often do we think these things? But when we break that down, I feel this way because, and the because in DBT, it may go back to being born. Mm. I had things happen in my childhood that were difficult. And in this moment, I'm being reminded of that. But you know what? Today is another day and I can always do better and I'm working really hard on myself. Yeah. Has DBT helped you cope with kind of this core fear of having so many losses in your life, you know, including your brother, just this sort of dread and helplessness and hopelessness that that triggered? When you read those manuals and those worksheet books, it's like, you know, it makes sense. This person is doing the best that they could. And these structures that we can name, bipolarity, borderline, anxiety, whatever, these are the compromises that the brain and the nervous system makes under extreme stress. And maybe that stress is like the womb, you know? Or maybe the stress was grandma was in a war and now you're genetically inheriting, like, I'm not gonna trust a damn person. I live in a world of danger, whatever it is. But the way that she describes it, the combination of the behaviorism, which looks at the functions of things, and then the Buddhism, both are non-judgmental. And when I, it's like, when I read that, I feel so empowered. And when I communicate with people in these terms, it feels so loving and supportive and empowering. It's not like, oh, it's the answer lies far outside of yourself. There just is within DBT this idea of radical acceptance, which is like, we're all going to die, and we don't know when that happens. And my mind wants to know, wants to know exactly, want, would love a time, you know, give me the time, <laughs> give, me the, give me the counter, who would really want that? But there is a part of me that's like, tell me it won't happen, but it will happen. I mean, the theory in DBT is like, we're people are born with emotional vulnerability, if some kind of vulnerability in their affective system, maybe it's cyclothymia, maybe it's bipo bipolar or depression, a lot of times with quote-unquote BPD folks, it's a kind of baseline irritability and depression with a cyclothymic kind of thing in, in there too. And was like, well, you know, and then there's an invalidating environment that doesn't teach skills for this type of challenge. And then off into the world and then now, okay, well, I'm going to use drugs to deal with this. I'm going to use this to deal with, you know, and then before you know it, it's like, this person is just like a collection of all these really unhelpful ways of coping with this issue that, that alienate people. Would you rather hear that or like, you know, well, it's the, it starts with the death drive <laughs> and also like an oral fixation, like an oral character. <laughs>
In season one, I did an episode called Why It's So Hard to Find or Be a Good Therapist. And I described the main roles of the therapist as alternating between holding and poking, holding and poking. And what I think is really interesting about the skills-based therapies like DBT is that they add another role for the therapist, that of teacher and of coach. Sometimes we come to therapy and we need compassion. We need our suffering to be witnessed. And sometimes we come to therapy needing to be challenged, to be confronted with the reality that we are the issue, the main problem, and the solution. And sometimes what we most need are skills. Skills to keep from harming or killing ourselves. Skills to keep ourselves from not hurting others and destroying relationships. We'll be back in two weeks. And as always, we love to hear your comments, your thoughts, your suggestions, whether by email, through my website, craigheacockmd.com, or even on my work voicemail. And if you call me, go gentle. All right. See you soon.